You're tuned into Going Long with Bruce Murray. Hello, everybody. I'm Bruce Murray, and welcome to my podcast, Going Long, where every week we spend some time with folks in the world of sports and those out of it with a love of the world of sports. Now, I'm not sure my next guest falls into either category, to be fair, because Phil Rosenthal, I wouldn't call him a huge sports fan, but he does tell an interesting story about why he does watch sports. But let's face it, he wrote one of the most enduring sitcoms ever about a guy who was a sports writer. If you don't know his name, he created Everybody Loves Raymond. And of course, Raymond's role in that show was as a sports writer. So as far as I'm concerned, that qualified for my podcast. And listen, if you're a sports fan, you love to eat. I don't know how I tied those two things together, but I'm going out on a limb here. I think if you're a guy and a sports fan, you love to eat. And he also does a show on Netflix called Somebody Feed Phil, which if you haven't seen it, I would recommend checking out an episode or two. He travels the world to almost every location and eats the local treats. And not only does he do that, he just does it with a genuine joy. And you don't get that from most people. He seems genuinely happy when he does all this stuff. And I will tell you, he seemed genuinely happy to spend some time with us on this podcast. Here now my conversation with Phil Rosenthal. Phil, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast, but I will admit to you, it's under false pretenses because when they said you were available, I said, I got to have him on. I, I loved Everybody Loves Raymond. I love his show on Netflix. Uh, but this is a podcast that is either talking to athletes themselves or folks that have, the, have a love for the world of sports. And I said, I don't have any idea if Phil loves sports. So you're here on the false pretenses, but I'll ask you, is there a love of sports that we can talk about? If not, I'll fake it, and we'll talk about writing a character who covered sports. Uh, I might be novel for your show because I'm somebody who doesn't care about sports in general. In fact, I was the kid who was knocked down in the hall by the football players in, in high school. And, and when Everybody Loves Raymond went up against Monday Night Football in, in 1997. Yeah. In about three months, we were beating the ratings for Monday Night Football. And that was my revenge. <laughs> now, I like sports when the stakes are very high because I love the theater, right? And, and movies. And when the stakes are high, then the drama is more compelling. And so when it's the Super Bowl, when it's the World Series, when it's the Olympics, when, when you're, there's a backstory to it, when there's a great human interest story behind it, then I am into sports. Now, I will say that during COVID, I have enjoyed watching the, the teams, especially because I'm in LA, we have a very good year, right? Yeah. yeah all, all, all around. And so that's fun. And my son is into sports and he even bets in his fantasy leagues. And I enjoy watching with him and bonding with him. So my answer to you is yes, sometimes. So, so you go to a Super Bowl party because you like yes. the drama of the big event. I do. But if everybody's and talking about the game, how do you engage? I know you love the food. We're going to get to the food. But how do you engage in the conversation? Because it's interesting to me. I'm asking, who's this guy? Why do they keep talking about this Tom Brady? Why is he so exciting? <laughs> <laughs> I would love and to then, have him at my party. And then you see why. <laughs> 
So you go and then I cheer like everybody else. And I'm like, because you're watching super people. You're watching superheroes do their thing. And, and you know, I watch this Super Bowl and I go, oh, my God, my tones. I, I feel so bad for this guy. He couldn't even. I mean, how do you throw when you're when you're almost parallel to the ground? Look how amazing the guy, this poor guy. If only the offense was helping him a little bit or the defense wasn't so horrifyingly good. He might have a chance. So I can talk a little bit about it because I'm seeing him a person. I have eyes and I see what's happening. And I understand at least enough about the rules of the game to know when it's a, and look, a great catch is a great catch. A great throw is a great throw. A guy who runs really fast, this guy runs really fast. It's universal. But how do you grow up in New York? And and you grew up, I know you didn't grow up in Queens, but you were born in Queens, right? Yes. So I spent- uh, I loved, I- I was a sports fan at nine years old because when I was nine years old, it was the 69 Mets. Oh, yeah. So well, I the went Knicks out were of my great, The Mets were great and the Jets yeah. were great in the late That's 60s. Right. And I saw, I think it was Super Bowl one, right? Yeah. No, Super Bowl, uh, su- no, not Super Bowl one. The Super Bowl one was, was pre that, Super Bowl three. That's okay. The Jets? Yeah. I remember seeing it. Yeah. That's when they beat uh, the Colts. Yeah. And, yeah. and I could name everyone on that 69 Mets team to this day. Really? Go ahead. Let me hear. Don way, some of them, we did it. We did a special episode of Everybody Loves Raymond, Everybody Loves Raymond where yeah. they went through the Hall of Fame. And I flew out the surviving uh, members of the 69 Mets, including uh, Tommy Agee and Cleon Jones mm-hmm. and Ron Swoboda and Jerry Kuzman and uh, Art Shamsky. And uh, I think we got everybody but, but Tom Seaver, who refused to participate. Okay, so a little background, by the way. I yes. started my radio career as a producer for WFAN. Yes. Uh, I produced Bill Mazur's show, but I also worked with Art Shamsky because Art Shamsky was at WFAN in the late 80s. That's right. And he has a podcast now, and I just did it this year. Does he? Who does? Does, does anybody not have a podcast? Everybody if I have a podcast, Phil, everybody's got a podcast. Everybody's you know what I mean? But so, look, see, so, so there's a little sports in my background. I, I just sucked at it. You know, I did the. <laughs> I, I did the recreation league and I couldn't, as soon as they started throwing overhand, I'm out. <laughs> right. But, but, you know, <laughs> to navigate high school when you're a kid and I see this yeah. with my kids, yeah. you know, I have two kids that are sports fans and my youngest is not really a big sports fan, although he plays hockey. Right. But I always say, well, what do the kids talk about in the lunchroom? Because yeah. it's like, that's the one common, the common that's theme right. that we all have girls. And when you're nine and 10, you're not into girls yet. So it's about sports. So how do you navigate your youth, your years in school without being a yeah. sports fan? It was about sports and it was about playing after school because yeah. we played, you know, touch football and, and, and you know, uh, softball in the street and, and everything else, everybody and soccer and everything. And we loved it. Yes, those are the games of childhood. But even then, if you're not great at it, you gravitate towards other things. That's why they have all the clubs in school, the chess club, the theater uh, thing that the, there's there's got there's the music there's got to be other things for other people so I gravitated more towards that because I sucked at sports so you know comedy you could be a comedy nerd in junior high when I was in junior high Monty Python's Flying Circus was on right? yeah so our lunch room table of nerds talked about everything on that right that was our sport but but you never hung out with the girls then. They didn't want to hang out with us. Right. They, right. They don't want to hang out with the nerds. No, I, was, I, was was sitting, I was sitting at a table talking about Benny Hill. We're, we're close yeah. in the same age. I'm a couple of years yeah. younger than you. Benny Hill was yeah. huge. Yes. The, girls didn't, the girls didn't want to hear us talk about Benny Hill. But they didn't want to talk about anything other than, you know, 
what they wanted to talk about. Well, that's, that's, actually, that's actually Unless true. they were pretending. You, you know, my wife tells me all the time, she goes, I suspect when you were in school, you were a nerd. And yeah. I go, I was. And she goes, and when you're in, when you're in high school, you want to hang out with the cool kids. And then when you get older, you want to get married to the nerds. Isn't that the way life works? It is. It turns completely around, doesn't it? The girls yeah. suddenly after college, they need you. Right. That's really, that's the truth of it. Yeah. And if I had just known that, <laughs> I just know that, right? I was alone so much and I was such a schlep and such a little nebbishy nothing. But, you know, the, the, the other things, the, the stuff, you, you find these groups and for you it was sports and you could talk about it till you, till you blew in the face. And for us, we had this comedy and we had the, the place to be funny, which was the theater department. I never thought of myself as a serious actor, but I loved being funny. And that to me was the sport. So, so how great was it? I don't know if you've done this, but, but how that's the, that was the way I got girls. Uh, well, listen, right? and success is a great way to get girls. But tell me this. How great is it? I don't know if you've done it, but with the level of success that you've achieved to go back to your high school reunion, have you done that? The high school reunion, I went to the, I want to say 20th or 25th. Right. It's like your own private twilight zone. <laughs> yeah. Right? Where you push a button and suddenly everyone is 25 years older. Instantly. Yeah. Because you remember them as you remember them. Right. In high school. And then you walk in a room, everyone's 25 years older. It's your own twilight zone. Yeah. I, I thought it was amazing to, as a sociological you know, thing. Amazing. And you look around, you go, she, she was the hot girl, he was the cool guy, and you're like, well, where are they now? And you, and you think 25 years later, I, I share this with you, and, and I got to get to all you. And now stuff. I'm the hot guy. Right, you're the guy. So I went to my, I've only been to one high school reunion. I went to my 10-year reunion. Yes. And my girlfriend had just dumped me, and I had no job. Okay. So I was thinking, when 20 rolls around, now I'm employed, I was doing a national radio show, I've yeah. got to go back. I've got something yes. to say. I've got a girl. That's I was right. living in Chicago, couldn't make it back. Right. I moved back to New York for my 30-year high school reunion, oh. and there was like a flood. Couldn't go to my 30-year reunion. So now I'm waiting for 40. I'm not going to make it. For 40, you're going to be, you're, there's going to be no line at the buffet. <laughs> there's not going to be a line. And I'm one of the few guys that still has hair, so I'm excited to go back. You're excited to go back. But I, I, uh, you shouldn't, you shouldn't just live for that. Let me, if I can give you a little armchair. That, that's all I live for. I have, I have, it's, it's a very, I have, I have a very. I have small, to show these people. <laughs> right, that's it. But so you wanted to be an actor before you transitioned to. I, want, I just wanted to be funny. I just, that's all I understood. You know, when you're a child, you don't know that there's writing, directing, producing. Right. Watch, in my case, the honeymooners, and you're from the New York area, so you know the honeymoon. Well, first of all, two things. Honeymooners was on four times a day when I was a kid, and they did like 40 episodes. You watched it for a week. You started to see the episodes again. And you memorized. And I, mem and I memorized every Odd Couple episode, too, by the way. Another one of my favorites. Yeah, yeah. okay. We have a lot in common. New York-centric show. Yes. These were the things that really influenced me. Yeah. And, but, you know, I just I would watch Ralph and Norton, and I could imitate them at three years old. And, and, and get laughs around my house with my parents and their friends. And so that, you know, you get that kind of validation. You start to carry that with you wherever you go. Yeah. And in class, they frown on you doing that. And so the only healthy outlet is the school play. 
So it wasn't that I wanted to be a serious actor, but I wanted to be imitating and acting out these heroes of mine. And as you, you get more exposure to other things, you start seeing the Mel Brooks movies and the Woody Allen movies and the, the funny movies of the, of the day. And you see Animal House and you see SNL, you know, came on when I was 15. And I was like, that's, that's it, that's it. And so you pursue that. And then you're a big star in high school, a big star in college. And then you graduate, you move to New York and nobody cares that you were a big star in high school, <laughs> a big star in college. Get out of here is what they say. Get a job. So that's, uh, you start to wonder what's going to become of you. And what I learned was you've got to write your own ticket, literally. So we wrote a show for ourselves to be in, some friends of mine from college. And that turns into something very successful. And that was my kind of transition into writing. What was that show? It was a show called Tony and Tina's Wedding. Oh, I've, I've seen Tony and Tina's wedding. I mean, you know, everybody, it got to the point where you'd go and you'd be participating in the wedding. Exactly right. So I was the original priest off Broadway. Really? I you, I know it's hard to believe. With the give, me name, like, give me a year. Give me a year. Because I may have been there. when. How long were you in it? A year. What year was it? I want to say 1988 or 87. Boy, it's close. Yeah. I would say, I would say I'm more 89 or 90, but it's yeah, close. So it ran a long time. Yeah. It even came to Hollywood. But yep. I, I, uh, I was the original priest. I wrote the ceremony, which was the only thing that kind of stayed the same every night with a couple of other uh, people. And I also, at the same time as that was happening, another friend of mine who was already a Hollywood writer said, we're going to write a screenplay, which I knew nothing about how to do it. And, and yet we wrote it and we sold it. And we sold that screenplay for, this was 1988, for $70,000, which was, it may have well have been $70 million to me because I had $200 in the bank. <laughs> yeah. But all of a sudden I was a thousand air. And by the way, that's a lot of money back then. A lot of money. And I went from, and we split it. And it was still $35,000 for me, who was literally $200 in the bank, doing odd jobs and, and, and you know, barely able to scrape up. My, when I told my parents, by the way, my father, you know, it's like, God bless America, right? My mother gets on, why is your father so excited? I said, I just sold a screenplay to, to HBO. They said, what? what how, how much did you get for something like that? I told her, and the phone went dead. I said, Ma, Ma, you there? She goes, do you know we've worked our whole lives to have that much in the bank, right? And it was almost like resentment, like you little shit. You make some jokes and, and the world rewards you with this. That's these are the values of the world that some 20 something year old can just fool around and make more than I've made in my entire life. Yeah. I can't blame her. It is crazy. But le le leave it to Jewish parents to make you feel guilty for succeeding. Right. <laughs> you're going to yeah. do You're going to find a way. <laughs> yeah. But, but then, you, you know, the second you hung up the phone, they were calling all their friends to brag to them. Well, my father was, my mother was more, you know, Really that way, really like didn't understand like why why a school teacher wasn't getting that money, right? right? Which is yeah. correct. What what, what what was the script? What was it for? The script was something that, uh, and I learned this lesson: just because they buy it doesn't mean they're going to make it. Right. And, you know, most things get bought because they're they're developing them, right. and if they don't cast it right or they don't feel that it's commercially right for the year, right. it goes away. 
right. and that's what happened with that. But yeah. it was my entree into. But 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 the I mean it was your entree into the business. Then you learn it's a business. Did it hurt not to have it made? Was it like seventy yeah. grand? Yes, but yeah. why aren't they making it? This is uh, this is my my hard work. Yes, it's like I would imagine being uh, uh, not making the first cut on a sports team, right? Yeah. So, so then th that's your foray in. Now you have the framework to do that. So when did you actually sell something that got made? The following year. The following year, I got hired on a sitcom. And what was that paycheck? I, I, love, I love to know paychecks. I'm all about paychecks, especially, if, you know. So I know I, 1989. Yeah. My partner at the time and I, we got hired as what they call baby writers, which is the lowest level writer on a sitcom. Okay. And I believe we each were taking home $500 a week, which was gigantic. 500 that, In other words, we were splitting a $1,000 salary. Plus yeah. we got money for every script that we wrote. Okay. So it was 500, it was basically a $500 retainer. And then if you got something that 500 was- 500 to show up for work. You made more. And, and participate in everybody's script and, and the production of the show. And then if a script had your name on it that you wrote, I think there was another 20 something thousand dollars per half hour sitcom script. Okay. Which was so, amazing. I don't know what it is now. I really don't. Uh, you, you don't it know? Must be, really must be a lot more. Yeah, it must be a lot. So, so I, you know, I, I'm really, I'm, I'm, I really want to spend some time talking about, you know, what you do now on Netflix, but I want to flash forward to Raymond. So, because I always hear about the pitch, like you've now been a successful writer, you've been on a sitcom, et cetera. So how yeah. do you come up with the concept and right. that, you know, then your career explodes. So the way Hollywood works is in the sitcom world anyway, they, the studio and the network, they, they look for comedians, funny people to do a sitcom for or a great actor. Right. And then they look for a writer to pair up with that person. So, so in my case, Ray Romano did six minutes on the David Letterman show. Right. He'd been working 12 years in the clubs all around the country to get that shot. And from that right. six minutes, Letterman, who had a production deal at CBS, said yeah, there should be a sitcom for that guy. I want to back Worldwide that. Pants. Worldwide Pants, Pants, right? Yeah. So Worldwide Pants, together with HBO Independent Productions, co-produced a show for this Ray Romano fellow. And they needed a writer to create the show for him. So I meet with Ray Romano in a deli in the Valley. And he starts telling me about his life, just as if I'm sitting down and meeting you for the first time. We're talking about where you come from. You grew up here, you have this family, you have this. And he tells me he had twin boys, an older daughter. His parents lived close by. They were always bothering him. His, his uh, uh, brother is a police sergeant and he lives with the parents because he's divorced. And he's very jealous of me. He says he, he, he sees my award for comedy. And he, when he comes over and he goes, it never ends for Raymond. <laughs> Everybody loves Raymond, right? And I said, well, it doesn't seem like there's anything there we can use. <laughs> No, I, I, I thought right away, I thought that's as good a premise for a show as any, even though it's very low concept. Yeah. Right. It's not a it's not a like a high concept is we're Martians and we come to Earth and we have to hide. So nobody knows we're Martians. Right. So that that's this is a low concept. This is a guy who lives across the street from his parents with his family. Then nobody's jumping up and down at CBS going, oh, how, what a sexy idea. We have to have that show. Right. And, 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 and it's driven by getting the right characters and making sure it all fit. And I want to get the, but by the way, I think it's funny. So basically you're telling me born out of six minutes of stand-up comedy. Yes. This guy gets a show. Now I get a chance to visit with Ray Romano every summer. I, I'm always out in Lake Tahoe for the celebrity golf event that he participates oh, in. So you know and he always comes over to the radio show. 
And now I sit there sometimes on a Wednesday and we look up and they go, oh, that's Ray Romano's plane. He's coming in right now. And I'm thinking, so six minutes on David Letterman and he's flying private jets into Lake Tahoe. That's what you're telling me. Uh, if you want to think of it that way, I guess, <laughs> yes. But uh, you're leaving out all the work. <laughs> yes, I, I skipped. I, I did yes. skip to the end. Yes. Uh, and the work that goes into it, because I, I kind of remember seeing interviews with some others on the show. So they hire a comedian that they build a show around. Seinfeld's very similar, obviously. And the reality is everybody that gets hired is an actor or an actress. The one guy that can't really act is the star of the show. And you're taking a big chance. Yeah. So so you can't do it. But let me tell you something. And I love Seinfeld and I love Jerry Seinfeld. Yeah. But I think he'd be the first to tell you he's not an actor. And he never got to be an actor. I agree. You see him in the scenes, he's literally laughing in the show. <laughs> yes, I agree. He's, he's putting his hand over his mouth, like sometimes I would, to avoid I would say, I would say, and I think he would say, Ray is a much better actor. I, I Not only is Ray a much better actor, but I remember when Ray actually became an actor after yep. Ray Romano, and I, right. I saw him out in Lake Tahoe, and I said, I'm, I'm, I was almost confused by the whole thing. He went on, was it Parenthood? Was it Parenthood that he played a-, a Parenthood and he was in the, the, the sick, uh, the, the movie with the, the, the girls in a coma with- uh, Oh yeah, yeah. Johnny, the big sick. The big sick. And, and, and then- he's My in- wife's in the background, by the way, feeding me lines. I don't know if you heard her. She goes, the big sick. I said, oh yeah, the big sick, right? Maybe she should have a show. <laughs> she probably should have a show. And then, you know, now he does Get Shorty. Um, and he's in the Scorsese movie. Right. And, I, Pacino. and so I said to him, I said, I, I don't understand. You're you're a comic, but you're an actor. And he goes, I don't really understand either. But he really did dedicate his life to becoming a better actor. And he's yes, gotten yes. really good at it. Yes. And you know what he says? If I was better at golf, I would give it all up. <laughs> yeah, there's no worry about him ever giving it all up because he's never getting better at golf. But but did you see that evolution? Like when you were part of that show, yes. and, and by the way, yes. you, you write that show, you pitch it. And like you said, it's very low. It's, yes. it's more about the characters than it is yes. about the concept. It's about the execution. Yeah. So, so tell me about it from be- the beginning. Was it a success at the beginning? Because I don't really remember it at the beginning. So we, we uh, they liked, to their credit, CBS liked the show. They thought it was funny. But we got a terrible time slot, which in a way was a blessing because no one expected you to perform in that time slot. They hadn't had a hit in this particular time slot since Gomer Pyle. What was the time slot? Gomer Pyle, oh, man. I want to say it was 8.30 on Fridays after a show called Dave's World. Oh, yeah, Fridays. Forget it. It's, it's, it's Forget where it. shows go to die. Or are stillborn. Yeah, right? right, exactly. But we got very good reviews. And the three people that watched, they came back every week and they could see that, right? Yeah, I, I was not and one of them. Something was crapping out on their huge Monday night lineup when something was doing badly. The president of CBS in the middle of our first season said, called me in his office and said, we're going to give you a chance. We're going to give you six Mondays after, you know, a show that's doing well. Right. But if you don't perform there, I can't help you anymore. It's like you made it to the World Series, but you could be sent home at any point, right? Right. And the first Monday that we were there, our ratings doubled from Friday. Wow. Now, you would think that's great. Ray and I both had this head 
oh no, next week we can only go down from here, so we're screwed. The next week, our ratings went up from there, and that's when we knew we were okay. Wow. Yeah. So, so what role did he play on the show? Not acting, but in in terms of the creativity of it. And yeah. what what is your you create the show? Yeah. I don't know if you're writing all the early episodes, yeah. but how does your role change as time goes on? Because how long was the show on the air? Nine years, and I stayed with it all nine years. Okay, which a lot of showrunners don't do because right. usually, if you make a show that's somewhat successful, they grab you to make the next show right away. And right. I did get those offers, and I, I wrote a whole book about the experience. If you're interested, it's called "You're Lucky, You're Funny: How Life Becomes a Sitcom." It's about how to take your life that you think is worthless or meaningless and turn it into something that might be valuable. Really? This yeah. life right here that I'm, I'm pointing to myself could be valued. Your stupid be. life could be something. I'm telling you, my mom and my wife may disagree, but, but, th- but that's so, so what role did he play? Yes. In he was it? integral in that, first of all, he is a writer himself. All his own standup is written by him. Sure. He also needed to feel comfortable since he never acted before. So everything out of his mouth, had he had to feel comfortable with. And okay. sometimes he would take the lines that I would write or the other writers would write and make it his own. So that was important. He also cared deeply about not seeming fake or what he would call sitcom-y. Like he would say, I don't want to have like a Lenny and Squiggy entrance, you know, like. Uh, and, and there are certain tropes of the form that you set up somebody's entrance so that when they enter, it is funny, but there's a good way to do it and a hacky way to do it. And he was, he had a very, very strong hacky meter, right? He wouldn't, here's how, here's how he took it to an extreme. In the show, there was a scene, Deborah's a terrible cook. His wife's a terrible cook. That's one of the jokes of the show. Yeah. Even the coffee's terrible. So like the, the third episode, even the coffee, terrible. And he goes, I don't know about this. I said, why not? He goes, I don't really drink coffee. I said, well, okay, right. In the cup, in some yeah. television, whatever you want, right? And he goes, yeah, I don't know. They'll, they'll know. So that's crazy, right? Yeah. But that's a little That's nuts. also, if you're an actor or know anything about acting, that's the method. That's what De Niro and Pacino, that's the... It has to be real. It has to feel real. And the realer it is, the more that De Niro studies actual boxing and becomes a heavyweight contender, the better that movie's going to be because you believe it. That's Ray. He didn't see, he says it without even knowing that that's what he's doing. And that's why he's so fantastic. So when he was done rehearsing his part on the show for the week, he comes back in the writer's room and is a writer with us. And he's giving me invaluable stuff because he's on his feet doing it, right? It's like the quarterback knows that the play is gonna work or not gonna work because he's out there with the people. Right. You know, you know I, I love learning this stuff because you know, it always reminds me of other things. I remember once seeing an interview with Dennis Hopper yeah. talking about acting yeah. and he said, and he, he recounted a story that he learned from James Dean where he said, James Dean told me, don't act like you're smoking a cigarette. Smoke a cigarette. It will look a lot more authentic. And it, it sounds so simple, but it's kind of like what you just said. If, you, if it's real, it will come across real. And I'll tell you, I want to find out about your role too, but I think what made the show 
what made it so great as well, and I think this is Seinfeld and all the other ones that work is, you never wrote to a punchline. The situation is what's supposed to be funny. There's nothing I like less yeah. than a sitcom where yeah. every single line is written for the laugh track to kick, kick in the punchline. And look, like they fell, but I don't like them. It feels like a sitcom instead of life. Yeah. The, the, the best compliment we ever got on the show was that it was relatable and that, that people said, it sounds like you were listening outside my house list. Right. right. Exactly. That's what we were going for. And it turns out that relatable is actually more important than what we think of as funny. Now, yeah. funny is, yes, job one, but it's funnier when it's relatable. Uh, I agree. And now tell me, how does your role change? So you're, you create it. You have to write. And, I'm, you know, I also think it's amazing the level of creativity required to keep a show moving forward without, by the way, jumping the shark. I've used I talked to George Went about this on another podcast on Cheers. Never jump the shark. You know, we all know happy days. Right. Jump the shark. Yours never, yours never did. How do you keep that creativity? And and how did your role evolve? I got better at running the show is how it evolved, because I'd okay. never run a show before. And okay. show running means every single creative decision from the costumes to the hair to where they stand in the blocking of the scene to the writing of every word of the show has to be filtered through one guy who's driving the car. So this is your vision? Yes. It's all your vision? It is my vision, but I share a lot of responsibility with not only Ray, who I want to make happy so that he is comfortable, so that we have a good show, but all the other writers. And the way we ran the show so it wouldn't become hacky and jumping the shark was, I learned this from Carl Reiner, who did the Dick Van Dyke show. Yeah. The way he ran that show was he would say to the writers, what happened at your house this week? So if you work for me, your job was to go home, get in a fight with your wife, and come back in and tell me about it. And 90% of what you saw on that show happened to me or to Ray or to one of the other writers in real life. Oh. And then we expanded on it from there. And sometimes it was the tiniest, tiniest thing that because of the baggage of the marriage and the relationship, just like you're nodding, you know what this is, becomes a giant thing. I know all about it. So we even did a show in year seven called Baggage, which was Ray left, uh, they left, they come back from vacation, they leave a suitcase on the steps. And neither of them touch it to move it. It's going to be you who moves it, not me. Oh boy! And this Mexican standoff. Wait, you sure this was written? The name of the show it? is literally baggage. But it it does sound like you've walked into my house and and, yes. and seen certain things. The plate in the, the plate in the sink. Exactly. Or I'm something that's sitting it. on the counter. I like, always clean it. I always move the suitcase. Yeah. Why don't you fucking move yeah. the suitcase? Today? <laughs> right? that's, that's, so that's that's marriage in a way, right? It becomes not this person that I love and uh, dedicated myself to for the rest of my life, but the person I'm at war with because there's no one else to be at war with. Right. So, so did, were you writing a lot of the episodes early yeah. and, and is it hard to step away and have somebody else write it when you no, probably have I'm your instinct? There. What's that? I'm because I'm always there. In other words, it's, it's, it's somewhat communal. Yeah. There has to, yes, there has to be one guy driving the car, but it's communal. So okay. in other words, we'd sit around there. We start every morning. With, we come in, we have breakfast, and we talk, and we talk, and we talk, and we talk, usually in effort to avoid working. Yeah. So we're just bullshitting about, but it turns out, what are we talking about? 
our kids bother us, our wife bothers us, our parents bother us. And usually it's these geniuses and me, also the genius, well, usually about lunchtime, we go, hey, wait a minute. That fight, that could be a thing. That could be a show. Now, if it happened to you, you're going to write that show. That's I, how think I, can, I think I could do this. I wish I was around. I'd be on your staff. So, so you just have to learn about, like, you could take a class tomorrow and learn about the structure of a sitcom. That's important. You just don't sit down and write a story and expect right. it to be a sitcom. You have to understand that every scene has a beginning, middle, end. It builds to an act break in the middle. Like a classic act break moment is we're getting married. All the action of the first act has risen to this moment, culminating in we're getting married. And all the action of the second half of the show is coming from that moment. It's like a tent pole, right? So you have your premise. What is this show about? You have your act break and you have your conclusion. Literally beginning, middle, end. I just gave you the, the basic structure of a sitcom. Do you, do you teach sitcom writing? I mean, like, I'm not Good. talking about professionally, but have, you know, have you ever well, done I, know, I, I have spoken at, at different universities and do. done seminars and classes, but I'm not a full-time teacher. No, I, I'm going to wait until I'm 80. So, 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 <laughs> so real, real quick, because I, I want to get to, you know, sure. the eating show. Um, <laughs> why does the show end? And, and was, it, yeah. was it challenging to keep it fresh? Yes. Why did the show end? It, it does get challenging. I would say it starts to get challenging. It, in other words, the first year is really hard because you're defining what the show is and you're yeah. finding what the show is. You don't know. And again, I could use a sports analogy. You don't know what plays work best with this team. Right. Right. Keep, keep so, using the sports analogies because that's okay. the whole point of the podcast. Go ahead. <laughs> I'm, trying to, I'm trying to keep it relatable to your <laughs> listeners. Right, exactly. So, so. You, you, that's the, that's a hard part, right? Forming the team, making the team, you know, and then maybe you're going to, if you're going to win the championship, you got to have good plays and you got to, they have to be executed perfectly. Yeah. So that's just like a sitcom and you, you, you do it. And then now your second championship season, not only do you have to do it again, but you have to do things that they haven't seen before. Otherwise they know all your plays, right? And that. You can have a very, it gets easier for a while and then it gets harder again. Why? Because you've done all the plays. Okay. There's no more plays to think of. But what I wonder how it ended, but, but how hard is it to walk away? Because look, there are times when we see shows and go, yeah, that stayed on too long, but it's gotta be tough. I, you know, when Seinfeld went off the air, yeah. if I'm correct, there was that story about them turning down like 500 million an episode or whatever that number was. And I'm thinking if that's me, I don't care if the last season sucks, I'm going to take the 500 million. So it that's can't be easy when, I, when there's that kind I, of money at stake. That's why, that's how we're different. Because yeah. I had enough money. And yeah. thank God Ray felt the same way. Because we all do know the shows that stay on too long. Just for the money. I think you tarnish your legacy. I think you actually hurt the show financially in the long run. Because you won't be welcome in syndication. Which is the honeymooners on four times a day. right? Yeah. <laughs> you won't be welcome there. If it stinks in the last couple of years, right? Even if you have seven great seasons, doesn't the last matter. four won't be welcomed. Doesn't matter. Okay. Because they keep coming around. And all you need is a, a person to see that lousy episode to never watch the series again. It's like if you went in a restaurant and you got food poisoning one time, you right. never even if everything else was fantastic. 
Yeah. You're, you're but, only as good as your weakest link, right? So, so did you decide to end the show knowing that we had run our course and we still yep. feel it's at a high level and this yep. was a collective decision? Did, did Ray yep. want to continue? You wanted to stop, vice versa? How did it work out? Ray and I wanted to stop. Ray and I said we should get off the stage before someone says, hey, you should get off the stage. This way we preserve our legacy and that's why you still see Raymond reruns. Yeah, I mean, right. it, it, it's everybody's living room. All right, so so you do that show. It's an extraordinary success. And I'm guessing after that, the world is your oyster. You can pick and choose whatever think. project you want to do. You would think. It, but not, I would think, but it didn't work out that way? I couldn't even get the spinoff of Raymond on the air right after Raymond with the well, same writers and some of the same cast. Why not? The business had changed in the nine years that we were on. And what everybody wanted was some kind of knockoff of friends at that time. And so they wanted to all get younger. They, and everyone in Raymond was over 40. Right. And so the spinoff of Raymond was going to be the brother, his wife, and her family, which was Fred Willard, Georgia Engel, and Chris Elliott, plus Brad Garrett and Monica Haran, who happens to be my real life wife. And so... That we that the and it was a way to keep all the writers from Everybody Loves Raymond together because we knew this show had taken its course, but we didn't want to break up. We wanted to keep writing together because, first of all, we were good at it. And second of all, we loved each other. We had become a family. Yeah. Imagine working nine years in the same room with all the same people. That's like going to high school and college plus together. Yeah. They they said we'll give you we'll give you a pilot episode. I said a pilot. The writers we were the writers from Raymond. We did nine years together. You know what we can do. And the cast did thirty episodes of Raymond. They were on. Yeah. Right. As 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 Amy's family. Yeah, but they were all over forty. And so, so you can't hold the writers of Raymond together. Yeah. For the promise of a pilot. Because they're getting multi-million dollar development deals at this point, having come off Raymond. Right. So, of course, that, that was the end of that. Now, I wrote a pilot every year for years that nobody wanted. And that, because my sensibility was what you see on Raymond. Family-oriented, not sexy, not hip. And all they wanted was sexy and hip and young. There were better people for that than me. And all the stuff they were pitching me to do, I didn't want to do, to be fair. Right. So I did other things. I wrote that book I just mentioned. I made a documentary about going to Russia because they invited me over there to make Everybody Loves Kostya to help <laughs> them do that. And that's a fun documentary called Exporting Raymond. Okay. And I started dabbling in this food and travel show idea. And it took me 10 years to get that show. Uh, okay, so, so let's talk about that. Somebody Feed Phil, which I've watched uh, with my wife. And it's funny because there are certain episodes we watch. Israel, uh, New Orleans. I went to Tulane. Oh. So you're, you're down in New Orleans. And I'm like, how could he not go to Domelisi's? What? And by the way, Dookie Chase, I'm sure you saw since you've done the episode, she's passed she, away. She was yeah. so great. Yeah. So I, I maintain that, that her fried chicken is the, is the best fried chicken. Well, before we even get to some of the specifics of it, the other thing I'm w wondering is I'm watching you eat all this exotic foods and I'm thinking, 
do you have to like everything? Because there's things like, I can't eat cilantro. You put cilantro in anything, that's it, it's over. There's nothing that's put on a plate that you don't pick up and go, oh, this is the best thing I've ever eaten in my entire life. I I don't get it. Because I'm not showing you the stuff I don't like. Okay, that's what I wanted to know. So what don't you like? Because I I don't like black licorice and not everything is fantastic. And if it's not fantastic, why would I put it in the show when I'm trying to get you to travel to this place? I don't need to be negative. Once in a while, you'll see something that's so disgusting. My brother, who's a producer, thinks yeah. it's hilarious that I almost died. And so that, that's, that'll be in the show. But yeah. other than that, like I traveled to Bangkok, and this, this master chef has worked for 50 years perfecting this thing. Here you go, Phil. Yeah, it's all right. That, you don't <laughs> want to see that. Why would you see that? Why would I put that in the show? That's not a show. That would be funny. Maybe now, that I'm, not acting, I'm not acting. I really do think the stuff I'm showing you is delicious. It is delicious. Yeah. But I'm making a choice in editing as to what parts of the trip to show you. Yeah. Uh, I do think, by the way, and, and you know, yeah. I, I've traveled a lot with my wife. We, we've yeah. been to Japan and eaten the foods there. But yeah, I, love it. I, I think people don't understand how good the food is in Israel and how diverse the food is in Israel. And I'm telling you, we watched that episode and it, it brings back all the memories for us. And I don't, I don't know if it felt different for you going over there because, you know, we all want to go to the homeland at some point. But, you know, how that felt. But Israel's extraordinary when it comes to food. I would say this. It is the, the hot cuisine of the world at the moment. Yeah. Like you can go almost to any country and there you're going to find a falafel or a shawarma or something Israeli influence because you know that Israeli cuisine is the amalgam of all the foods around it, just almost like perfected and, and, you know, improved upon, right? I love it so much. And I eat Israeli food in Los Angeles at least once a week. Fantastic. So, so, but I'm thinking about the show, and I, I remember there was a South Park episode where there's the person working at Netflix that picks up the phone and goes, yeah, you're green-lighted, you're green-lighted. You know, they need so much content. Like, you, you talk about the difficulty of getting on TV. They're like, we'll put anything on TV. I, I think it was that way at first, but it's so, not anymore. But because, you know, there, there's a lot of people out there doing this. You know, now I, I see Stanley Tucci doing it on CNN, you know, traveling and eating. Yeah, I got a message for Stanley. Yeah. <laughs> Stay out of my lane. <laughs> Get out of my, I've been to Italy. I've done that. But like, what, what's your pitch when, when you're doing this? Because, you know, food shows have been around. You're going to give it a different perspective. What's the idea behind it? I want to motivate you to travel. I think there's no more mind expanding thing in life that we can do. So it's travel, not food. Well, I'm using food and my stupid sense of humor, whatever that is, to get you in. Because I think the world would be better if we all could experience a little bit of other people's experience. Maybe we wouldn't be in the shape we're in here if we all were a little less provincial and a little more accepting of the, of the world, right? Yeah. And so, I, listen, I love food. You see that I love food. It's a wonderful reason to get you off the couch and out the door. So why not use so that thin? to make the larger statement? How, how are you so thin, by the way? I don't finish anything you see me eat. Which which I see you say in some of the episodes, I get that, but you're still sitting down with plates and plates of food, for God's sakes. Yes, you're also seeing a week's worth of filming condensed into less than an hour. So you're not eating eating outside of the show. When you see a scene, that's probably all I ate that day. You know how they make a dog food commercial? They They don't don't feed the dog until the commercial. 
<laughs> I'm the dog. Make sure that that dog will be hungry. That's right. Uh, and and do you pursue the things like like who comes up with the place that you're going to visit? Is it driven by historic like the history? Dookie Chase, obviously, great history in New Orleans. But are, do you choose what you're excited about, or do you have to like kind of you know bring the history of the place into it? I I do get to approve everything, uh, and yet and and I do my own research as you could do. If you were planning a trip anywhere, you would Google best restaurants Tel Aviv, right? Yeah. And and make some reservations. But then I have something that you might not have, which is a production company in New York that used to be Anthony Bourdain's production company called uh. 0.0. <laughs> and they have boots on the ground because of his show was 12 years. So they have people in every location on the earth that can tell us the up to the minute stuff. And what I'm interested in is not just the best whatever they make there. But what is culturally fascinating? What is a great charitable thing that is innovative and great and would be inspiring to people? What is the best architecture that we have to see when, because a city is defined by how it looks? What is the architecture of the place? It's no small thing. All these things we're factoring in. And so, yes, maybe, Obviously, everybody has an opinion. I didn't go to Domelisa's in, in New Orleans, so you're annoyed because that was your fave, right? right. I, but I, I have fun uh, less than an hour. You know, <laughs> all these things. How can I do everything? So what I do is I say, admittedly, we're scratching the surface. If you are interested in seeing the rest, come. And don't just use me as a resource. You could even use Stanley Tucci. I'm okay with it. <laughs> so what you're saying is because my wife's in travel as a matter of fact she's, oh she organizes travel uh she she searches out the best restaurants when we travel what you're saying is and i, I love to eat her. the only thing standing between me and that is a production company I, that's all i need to to do the show a production you have company. the phone so and I you have shows like mine and other people that you can cross-reference and see what the best stuff is not only that, the, uh, the, maybe the most important thing is that we leave room in the schedule for serendipity so that we're walking down the street and we see a line or something and we get on it because who knows what that will be. And nine times out of 10, it, it's really worth standing on that line because if they were poisoning people, the line wouldn't be so long. <laughs> right. Have you reached out to chefs in your travels that were resistant yes. to doing the show? Yes. Yeah. And, and what, why? Well, they, they, is it not? They don't want publicity. Why? Why, why would somebody they, say no? They've done too many shows, and they're way too popular, and they can't stand it. They can't anymore. I've gotten that you, once. I've gotten that once or twice. Most places, please come and film, right? Yeah. But some places, they don't want. That's too much. And, and how many people, because of the, the the notoriety that you've gotten, and you've done what four or five seasons? Is it four seasons on four, four? seasons now? But okay. one uh, a season on PBS before that. Okay. And, and do you have people now reaching out to you going, man, I saw your show. I'd love to come. I'd love to have you come visit. And, you know, yeah. and vi yeah. you do. Well, if you follow me on Instagram, I, you can DM me. I, I don't know. I don't know uh, anything about social media. Instagram. Uh, <laughs> you're, you're, six, you're, you're 61 and you're on Instagram. I don't even put your get wife on the phone. Put your, let me talk to her. She understands. <laughs> I'll bring her. I'll bring her over in, in a couple of minutes. All right. But um, she, she, she will know that you can direct message a person, send them a personal message. Yeah. And I get personal messages from all over the world. And do you respond? Instagram saying, come to Turkey. I will show you around personally. <laughs> they think they're the only ones writing to me, which is very sweet. <laughs> uh, I was about to say, do, do you try to respond to, to a lot of people? Uh, it, sometimes you feel it's guilty just emoji. 
it's an emoji that acknowledges that I love you and thank you. But uh, other times I'll, I, I will write back if I have time. And I do I think like it's funny. Connection. I'm only doing this to make the connection. Uh, I, I do think it's funny, by the way, you'll bring your parents in on yeah. Zoom. And yeah. I'm telling you, it's we're leading parallel lives. You know, they, they, they don't understand the technology. They're not really sure what buttons to press. And how do you decide to incorporate them in the show? So in the documentary, Exporting Raymond, where I go to Moscow to help the Russians make, try to do an adaptation of my show. I got invited to a family's house for dinner, which I really wanted to do because I wanted to see how real Russian family lives. And if you see the documentary, the studio is telling me, you know, they're not really, the Russians, they're not really interested in family things. They're really not, in, and Raymond seems like a very weak man. And in Russia, we have strong men. And I'm listening to this, and I, this sounds a lot like bullshit to me. This is not, this doesn't seem real. I think people are people, right? Yeah. yeah. And all I'm asking the whole time is, can we get into the Russian family's house? I want to see what, they, what it's like to eat them. And sure enough, I go, and they're exactly like us. They have the kids, they have the family, and everything. The only thing they do is they drink a lot of vodka at dinner. But the, the parents were there, the, the, the grandparents. And I'm talking to them, and they're wonderful. And I say, what do you do for fun? They say, well, we, we love going on the computer. I said, do you know, you know how to use the computer? And they said, oh, yes. And I said, this I have to see. Okay, because my parents, they can't do anything. Yeah. Uh, what would you like us to do? And I thought of it right there. Skype with my parents in New York. And we did it. And it's the best scene in the movie. Right? Because you see how we're all the same and different enough to be hilarious. Right? So when I get the food and travel show, I think two things. One, I remember that scene. Yeah. And I think that Skyping or Zooming with the person is the modern day equivalent of the postcard. And my show is kind of, if you notice, a hybrid show. It's not just a food show. It's not just a travel show. There's a little bit of sitcom in there. And what makes something a sitcom? A character in a situation that might be funny with other characters that recur. So my parents are the recurring best supporting actors of somebody feed Phil, right? Now my mother has since passed away. I'm sorry uh, to hear that. That's all right. And so if you saw season four, it was just my dad. And, and he is 90, he's going to be 95. Wow. And every single episode, he has a joke. He has a joke from his brain, from the Catskills that he remembers. And he, he does it, knocks it out of the park. Every show, he is the single best thing in the show. Uh, it's great. And, and what a great way you stay connected, obviously, on such a regular basis. But did, did your mother, before she passed away, ever warm up to the idea that you were making gazillions for writing sitcoms and doing travel shows? Yes. You know what helped? Buying her thing. <laughs> That, that that was the ticket to, to her happiness saying, yeah, it's okay that you make more than a teacher now <laughs> buying her things. <laughs> is he is he still in, in, in New York? Is your dad still in New York? My dad has since my mom passed uh, over a year ago now, uh, has moved into a retirement home uh, where he's had friends for 70 years. So he's in a great kind of community. Now, it sucks that two months after he moved in, COVID hit, and he couldn't leave his room. Uh, that's that brutal. sucks. Yeah, that's brutal. But, but 
he's gotten the vaccination both now and he's good to go. So he, he can go out and he can see his friend. So that's All right, real, real quick. Cause yeah. I know you got to go. What, what, is there something next? Do you have like in your mind an idea? Like this is what I want to be next. What's it going to be yeah. other than co-hosting a radio show with me? I will do it anytime, but yeah. I want sure. to continue doing this yeah. show travel show because not only is it the best gig in the world, as you can probably tell, yeah. but I feel like now that I've been connecting with the people and gotten such a nice response that I almost feel like a, it's a mission to put something nice in the world. Right? Does Netflix give you a budget for this? Is it like, yeah, they sure. give you, yeah and, and it pays for the travel and all of it, or like, like, does it pay for everything? Or is it just, is it a set budget that you have to fit into? Or do you go, I'm going to Japan, this is what it's going to cost? It's a set budget and and uh, they're a business and they would like to spend as little as possible to, to <laughs> make the show. So, so that, that's something that we're talking about now. But no, it's not just whatever you want. Well, I will tell you in saying goodbye that it's always great to talk to somebody that is still excited about what they're doing and you are. I love is, it. I love it. And I have sitcom ideas and I'm working on those as well. And I'm happy to, you know, have two lives where half the year I do the travel and half the year I help with sitcoms. That would be wonderful. So, so you're the luckiest guy down. you're ever going to talk to. You never want to slow down? Like, you know, the, you, you, how many people say, well, what does he have to work for? He's got all the money in the world, but yeah. people work. And some, sometimes yeah. it's to satisfy your ego. Like, right. I have to feel important. Other times right. it's, so what is it? Why do, why do you, like, have you ever thought about saying, you know what, I'm just going to play golf? They said that to me right after Raymond. When I was done with Raymond, I was, I was 45 years old. Yeah. 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 What should I do? Lay in bed the rest of my life? I, yeah. I want It's what I do. Like, it's a reason to live, right? To do what we do. I, and I love what I do. Yeah. So I want to keep doing it. I don't want to have nothing to do. First of all, it's lonely to have nothing to do. Yeah. And I'm not that, you know, some people that one guy said to me, if I was you, I would go sit on a mountain the rest of my life. I said, you probably would. I wouldn't. <laughs> right. So you'll do this as long as the legs work. Yeah. And thank yeah. God the and legs. The mouth. And the mouth, by the way. You ever take a hike somewhere where, where it, I mean, in, in recent years, where you got up to the top of the thing and you're like, thank God my legs still work. Yeah. Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I've been told. I've been, this? Yeah. I've been told to take a hike somewhere, but that, that's another story. <laughs> uh, listen, I, I got to let you go. Cause I know you have other things on your plate. I'm so glad we could spend some time together. The show is great. I'm watching. Bruce, uh, next time I'm in New York, we're going to eat. Yes. Uh, listen, uh, I'm right near Westchester. Uh, yes. I have a lot of friends that are from Rockland. You're near, you, you're near my favorite restaurant in America, which is what blue Hill at stone barn. Oh, well, you got six hours. You can go there, sit at the bar and, you know, eat the tasting dinner. You don't have dinner. to spend six hours. You can let's, do it. And by the way, you know who makes the best pizza in Connecticut? I do. Uh, oh. I do. Pizza oven in my backyard right here. I have a pizza oven in the kitchen. Yeah. You, you, you want to come over? Yeah. Then, you, then we can go on the show. Hey, okay. listen, Phil, thanks. Really appreciate it. As always, hope you enjoyed the conversation as we spent that time with Phil Rosenthal, the creator of Everybody Loves Raymond, and of course, now the host of Somebody Feed Phil. You can check out my podcast every week on the SiriusXM app or wherever you get your podcast. We drop a new episode every Thursday. I hope you'll join me next week. SiriusXM Podcasts.